with tiger i'll keep this brief this episode is with dr nick allen this is his second appearance so if you really enjoy this one go check out episode 17 and if you're new here subscribe if you enjoy the content leave a review and if you think it brings value to your life give back by just sharing it on social media and with friends without further ado lots of love and here's the show all right and i'm live with dr nick allen how goes it man i'm well how are you doing doing really well what you been up to lately traveling a lot i see yeah yeah, I've been traveling. I've been uh, I've been all around the world. I've been to Australia, uh, been to Europe. I've been all over the west coast of the US. Yeah, I'm sure I've been somewhere else. But yeah, it's been a whirlwind. So I've been. It's been nice to just be home for a while. I like it. For new people, would you want to give a brief introduction of you and your work? Sure. So I'm a, a professor here at the University of Oregon. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And I teach clinical psychology and do research on mental health problems, particularly in young people. Mm. So adolescents and young adults are particularly interested in problems like depression and substance use. And uh, my whole career, I've been trying to work out ways we can prevent those problems and how we can understand them better so that we can have better prevention and we can detect problems early before they become really severe and, and, and then help to people to avoid getting to that more severe state so that's that's the kind of the underlying theme of all my work is you know how to if I had one question that I've been working on for my career it's how can we prevent um, people having problems with depression during adolescence beautiful and to dive right into it one of the studies I read right outside I think you've published over 140 uh, one of them was how opiate use and abuse uh, leads to anhedonia Yes. Um, do you have any recollection of that study? Is of it, course. Is it, yeah. So, because yeah. I mean, uh, I briefly mentioned on last time I was on, mm-hmm. I use opiates every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but conversely, I don't have anhedonia. I do think I have uh, the aphantasia, though, mm-hmm. or, uh, where I can't imagine things very well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that comes from that, but I'm, but I'm curious where, because uh, the episode is coming right out after this. I had, uh, he's a manager at a restaurant in town, and he went very in-depth about his heroin use and abuse yeah. and how he's currently recovering from it. Yes. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what would lead you to believe... I mean, I'm not, I'm not debating it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you know better, mm-hmm. but uh, d- does it lead to anhedonia or what is that, you know? Well, so you've got to understand that the, what opiates are doing is that they are, if you like, they're drugs that hack one of the pleasure systems in the brain, right? And there's, there's, there's two systems that people talk about. There's, there's many, but there's two fundamental ones. Um, people talk about the wanting system and the liking system. Okay, and the wanting system is, to simplify things, is largely associated with the neurochemical dopamine, and it's about the motivation to go and get things, you know, that that you want. Right? That's what's called the wanting system, and so, and that system is 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 affected by a lot of drugs uh, of, of of abuse that people use, and and particular cocaine would be a, an example of a very strong. Uh, dopaminergic agonist is the, is the pharmacological term, but what it means is it's it's making that system more active. And so, when you think about the kinds of behaviours that occur when people take cocaine, they're very kind of goal directed. They've got energy. They you know they have a lot of a lot of focus. Yeah. They you know they sometimes the focus isn't particularly well placed, <laughs> but but that's you know that's the kind of thing. The other system is called the liking system, mm-hmm. and it's more about the experience of pleasure and that and uh, the endogenous or the biological opioid system mm-hmm. uh, that exists in your body is is often about that so it's more mm-hmm. about so one way of thinking about this is that let's say you're really hungry then the wanting system will make you want to go and get food mm-hmm. it'll be it'll motivate you you'll look forward to getting food yeah. there'll be a lot of excitement about that. So I crave dopamine, then I get it, and then I get the the, the good feeling from that's, it. The that's right. And feeling. then once you eat the food, mm-hmm. then you, you have this liking sensation. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, that was nice. And that's probably more of an opiate system. Mm-hmm. So the reason I tell you that is because, uh, of course, uh, opiates that people use essentially artificially, and I'm, I'm not saying yeah. this is a bad thing, but they artificially hack that system. Oh, 100%, yeah. And so what they do, and so opiates is opposed to things that are 
dopaminergic, um, so drugs like heroin, for example, mm-hmm. uh, affect this opiate system. And of course, they have a very they the the experience you have using those medications is uh, um, and substances is one of uh, relaxation, euphoria. You know, that's a different kind of groove. Yeah, right? you'd almost say that, but I found in the long term, I think it actually goes the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that might be like the dehydration aspect of it or something. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed over time, I'm probably, and it could just be from life stresses and stuff, but I think I found myself being more tense three years into taking opiates every day rather than the opposite direction. Of that. Right, right. Well, that's, that's yeah, that, that's, there, there are particular things that happen when you take any kind of uh, substance over a long period of time. Yeah. And it starts to react with your body in different ways. And there are various, there are various um, uh, processes like tolerance and withdrawal that come into play. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to get back to your question about dopia, uh, uh, sort of, uh, opiates and anhedonia, yeah. and of course we might uh, you know, define anhedonia is, the, is like a, a reduced ability to experience pleasure or, yeah. or enjoyment associated with things. And I think the theory is that there's sort of two ways in which this relationship can occur. First of all, if someone is a bit anhedonic to start with, yeah. you know, like that's part of their personality, they just don't experience a lot of pleasure easily in things. Opiates would be like a deaf person listening to really loud music. Totally. Kind of hear yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or, or maybe a better metaphor, a close metaphor would be someone with with a hearing deficit mm-hmm. as opposed to being deaf, yeah. then listening to really loud music, you need more signal to mm-hmm. kind of push the system up and to get that response. And so for someone who is a bit anhedonic anyway or maybe who's experiencing depression or sadness or something, then the opiate uh, drug will supercharge this system. Then, but the, the, so, so the first thing is people who are more anhedonic may choose to use these drugs. Mm-hmm. But then the second thing is when you start to use these drugs, because the, in, the intensity of the manipulation of the opioid system that you get from a drug is much stronger than what you get from oh, a real-life experience, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. But, but the point is the system was designed from, by evolution to respond to a real-life experience. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's meant to respond things like eating food or fall, falling in love or mm-hmm. having sex or you know, seeing something beautiful or whatever it may be. And these, and these don't modulate the system. So then when you take an opioid drug, it modulates the system really powerfully and, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's strong. And so what happens is it starts to make these other pleasurable experiences, these non-drug-related ones, mm-hmm. feel more... Gray. Why would I go out meet a girl and have sex when I could just drink that's some right. kratom? That's right. Up? You yeah, can 100%. you can go straight to the you can manipulate the system directly rather than having to do all that work and mm-hmm. you know have all that uncertainty, etc. So the point is the reason why this is really an important concept for uh, people who uh, who use opiates recreationally and and maybe have an addiction to them is that what happens is when they try to stop using opiates. Mm-hmm. Then of course, what they want to do, which is totally understandable, is they want to replace the the enjoyment and pleasure that they got from using opiates with other things, with natural highs, for yeah. want of a better term. And then, and and the point is that's hard to do mm-hmm. because it ju- those other experiences just don't mm-hmm. you know float your boat as much as the as the as the drug did. And so there's this period when it's really difficult, and this is a period where people. Uh, often relapse or more likely to relapse yeah. and to start using opiates again because they they're trying to quit they you know they're going cold turkey that's all you know that's all difficult but you know fine but then when they say okay now I want to build a lifestyle that you know really makes me feel okay and good about myself mm-hmm. um, and it's really hard to get some of those other things you know those natural yeah. sort of experiences to drive the opioid system as much as the drug does now the good news is that over time that effect will will um, reduce and you'll find that, you know, you you do start to get more enjoyment yeah. for those. But when you are comparing like a shot of heroin or, you know, um, some other opiate, even a prescribed opiate, mm-hmm. to, like you said, these sort of ways, Sugar, you know, yeah, exactly, then oh. it's, it's, it's kind of like there's yeah. no comparison because what you're doing with the, with the drug is you're reaching into the brain chemistry system and you mm-hmm. are pushing the button directly. Slamming it with a hammer. E- exactly. Like. Well, I noticed um, a lot of people down in San Francisco have been doing uh, op- dopamine fasting where they don't mm-hmm. work out. Mm-hmm. or go out, Like they just literally try to have no dopamine for a day mm-hmm. or two. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, that's an interesting way to look at it. I'm actually going to a 10-day 
silent meditation retreat mm-hmm. here in a while. I'm obviously going to have to get off before then or else that's going to be a very brutal 10 sure, days. Sure, sure, um, But yeah, for me, and I'm not using a serious opiate. It's like no, a partial no. opiate agonist. But sure. I think the most detrimental substance I've ever used mm-hmm. has hands down been Adderall. Hmm. It's something that I'm like, oh, like, you know, everyone in college takes it. So they give it to kids. Those are two easy. I mean, I'm a person who rationalizes use in my head. That's obviously what uh, people who are addicts do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, they give it to kids and everyone's taking it in college. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that it makes your mood more variable, Mm -hmm. hands down, without Mm -hmm. a doubt. Mm -hmm. Um, Even more so than MDMA use. Yes. I'm I'm just blown away that Mm -hmm. so many people use Adderall. But again, I might be on it right now. Allegedly, who knows? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's not a, that's not an area I have a lot of expertise in, but mm. I know that there's a lot of concern about how little we know yeah. about that sort of more. I mean, I was going to call it recreational, but often it's not recreational. It's it you know it's people are using it to, uh, you know, to kind of do study yeah. binges and things yeah. like that, and to manage alertness and mm-hmm. and focus. Or they and tell themselves th- that exactly. <laughs> um, um, but it is just dopamine. Like the XR Adderall is almost like a twelve-hour cocaine amount of uh, dopamine. Sure. Which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, and there is actually you know I mean uh, amongst uh, the most the most typical uh, medicines that people use for ADHD often are dopaminergic and Mm -hmm. it's not often used but even there's a drug called dexanthetamine which is a which is used for adhd which is really a very strong dopamine agonist Mm. so much so that it's often it's a controlled substance it's harder to well they actually use methamphetamine desoxin is maybe what you're thinking of desoxin instead of or whatever the one you said dexanthetamine yeah, yeah uh Desoxin is methamphetamine, which they give to severe uh, insomnia cases and yeah, yeah, severe ADHD yeah, yeah, cases. Yeah. But um, so we got a little bit personal with me, and now I'm sure. interested in getting a little bit personal with you. Last time okay. we spoke, episode 17, um, I asked you, I'm like, okay, you've been studying depression for 10 years. Do you ever deal with it? And you said, no, I tend to deal more with anxiety. Mm-hmm. What are you anxious about? Because from you know a young 20, 20 22 year old, uh, you seem successful. You seem like on the other side of the bridge mm-hmm. where no more anxiety would lay. So I'm curious, what do you have to be anxious about as a person who's quote unquote made it? <laughs> yeah, well, so one of the, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I do, you know, I do draw some satisfaction from where I am in life. Like I feel proud of what I've achieved and, you know, yeah. I feel it. And I certainly, it's good to feel kind of secure and to have a job you like and, you know, shelter and you know feel like your kids are doing okay and all that sort of and stuff to be invited on awesome podcast that's right exactly uh but you know anxiety is a it's a it's probably part of the human condition and 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 so for me i don't know i i, I struggle with anxieties that i've struggled with all my life like it's very you know it's very hard for me not to be liked Really? Yeah, and that's and that's a that's a thing I've wrestled with all my life. You know, like yeah. I really kind of would like everyone to like me, which is literally impossible. Yeah. And so when it becomes very evident that you know some people don't like me, it's always something that I have to work on accepting. Mm-hmm. And so intellectually, I totally get that that's an unreasonable thing to ask for from life. But yeah. at an emotional level, that kind of I'd kind of like everyone to like me, you know, so so I have that, um, you know, and then the other thing that I find at this stage of life, if you're asking about stage of life issues, you know, that that former thing is something I've probably had um, difficulty with my whole life. But um, the, the other thing is, you know, I'm 56 and that's not necessarily that old but yeah, i do it, shit, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's all relative right but but the but the issue is you start to think like wow how much longer have i got yeah. and and what is and what am i going to be able to achieve in that and you know am i going to be able to so i i get anxious a lot about just thinking about like okay maybe i've got 10 years left of working, oh, wow, maybe yeah. 15. Well, I mean, has your dad died yet? Yeah, both my parents have so passed you, away. You at that point think, all right, well, I'm next in line. Totally. So that's brutal. But to go back to your uh, to your other one, not being liked, mm-hmm. when before we went on air, I told you you've been my most requested guest. Do you yeah. think that makes it better or worse? Because you're like, okay, a lot of people like me. Or does it make it worse because it builds you up and then you have a bigger hole to fill? Like, okay, a lot of people like me that time. I want even more to people like me. Yeah. I, you can do that. <laughs> you can do that, but that's not what I do. Like if you say, "Oh, people liked your podcast," then I I feel good about that, and mm-hmm. it's nice, a nice thing. I just know that, you know, 
throughout my life I've I've just it's it's you know some people appear mm-hmm. to be comfortable to say like ah that per, you know that person doesn't like me they're a jerk I don't care you yeah. know and that's not something that's ever been easy for me mm-hmm. it's something where I've been always like oh you know yeah which you know even even people where I have no rational reason to care mm-hmm. where you know it's a it's a it's a it's definitely a vulnerability mm-hmm. or a burden to yeah. carry around but you know but it, on the other hand it's there's probably worse things, worse yeah. fears to have. Well, but it's probably made you more charismatic and likable because it's a skill. That, well, you a, work at being likable, yes. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, but then when it doesn't work, and of course it doesn't work all the time, mm-hmm. um, then you feel, feel very frustrated or, or, or bad about yourself, you know. And so that's the that's, that's, that's thing. But, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's just one of those things. I think a lot of people, and my, this is certainly true of me, when you – the issues you wrestle with in life – it's not like you deal with them and move on. It's more like you have certain themes yeah. that are kind of fairly strong for you and you kind of circle around them and, and, and it's not like you're going to deal with it and move on, but it's more like you just try to learn about it and you learn the contours of it and you learn how to be smarter with it and you, you know, but it's all, it's still there. And so that's how I would put that sort of thing. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that I've become aware of. Nice. It's a thing that is a, is a burden sometimes mm-hmm. and probably is a maybe a superpower yeah, other times, you know, like so it's probably helpful sometimes yeah. to be that way and to always try to be agreeable yeah. and make things work socially. But, you know, even at my age and I suspect even older, you know, like I'll still wrestle with this, but hopefully what one hopes is to get a little mm-hmm. wiser about yeah. how you manage it. It's so funny to think. If you were a girl growing up with that exact problem, you'd just be like, all right, I'll be really slutty and just have everyone like me. I think that's the classic retort for them. Right. Men can't really do that. It's a it's a much different playing field for guys out there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, just to get kind of theoretical in psychology for a second, you know, there's, there's – um People talk about these two dimensions of social life, and one is the dimension of of, of, of warmth or being liked mm, yeah. uh, versus not, and the other one is the dimension of being of having power or being respected. Mm. And and you can sort of develop status either of these ways. You can be have high status because you are uh, very likable, and mm-hmm. you can have high status because you're powerful and respected. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, right? and so and so and so I think what happens over people's lives is that they work out what's the strategy that works for them mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the balance between those things. And of course some people are respected and liked, which mm-hmm. is probably pretty uh, awesome, but well, other people really work on on mainly on the being liked strategy and other people work mainly on the being respected uh, strategy. Money. Yeah, yeah, well money or power or yeah. like, you know, and they and and sometimes those people don't seem to care that much about whether they're well liked. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, so to go into it a little bit more, um, do you feel lonely then? Because I think what I've noticed from guests, even the most popular people that come on, like borderline, mm-hmm. like local celebrities and just mm-hmm. well liked people, they they think that they've never been part of a group. And I commonly say it on my show. I think it is because TV shows, Parks and Rec, all these different shows make it seem like you're gonna have a core group of friends, mm-hmm. and that's just not reality. And I think right. everyone feels lonely because of that. Yeah, I, I think that. You're right. The, the media often portrays a kind of an idealized social life. Mm-hmm. That a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of the TV shows and sitcoms are about a kind of a group of friends that yeah. have this incredibly intertwined lives. We'll and drop everything to help. That, each that's other. right. And yeah. and you know, and and I've got good friends, and I think many people have good friends. And of course, I'm married, and, and you know, I have a life partner, and and that's that's been very successful relationship for me. So that's that's another thing that. Guards against a feeling of loneliness, mm-hmm. but but what if she didn't text you back for three days? Yeah, you, that that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't think. happen. But <laughs> no. what if it did? You My know, wife. it's it's almost a different. It's a, it's not even necessarily lonely at that point. You'd almost be just worried for her well being. Oh, totally. You know, yeah. Well, but this is someone I live with, so I, yeah, I do. Okay, yeah, but yeah, maybe yeah. if I was traveling, I didn't hear from her for a while. That no. that that can happen. Um, but so. But to get to your question, no, I feel lonely sometimes. I, I definitely do, and I do sometimes. And, you know, there's an interesting thing about, I mean, if you want to go off on a deep tangent, I think there's an interesting thing. You were talking about gender before, and I think there's an interesting question about men and men's friendships. It's mm-hmm. quite um, – I was watching uh, Saturday Night Live 
recently and John Mullaney did a, he was the guest host and he did a whole comedy routine about how, why your father doesn't have any friends, you know, and he said, and he said, you know, they, they have friends they had in high school mm-hmm. and then they've got the husbands of your mother's friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, so he's kind of doing a comedy routine, but there's, there's a, there's a, I think there's a, there's an interesting difficulty that men sometimes have having and sustaining close friendships yeah. uh, because men often, you know, uh, have friendships around doing things. Yeah. Right? And well, so, that's what breaks. Like if you were to hang out with a friend your age, what would you do? Like you just kind of have to go eat somewhere because it's not like, hey, come over to my house and hang out. Right. You know? Well, you know, you can watch TV and you can go to sporting games and you can yeah. go and see bands and you can go to the movies and you can, there's a lot of things you can do. But I think, you know, and of course when I'm saying these things about men and women, of course I'm there's enormous overlap. Oh, yeah. and, there's, and, there, and there's, you know, there's slight differences between the genders in this regard. But, but you know, I do think that, for many men, they get to the end of their working life mm-hmm. and they find that their social life is not is fairly impoverished yeah. because they have put a lot of work mm-hmm. into working and, it's, and, of course, women put a lot of effort into working too, but often they are better at sustaining close friendships while they're doing that. Yeah, women are that. Yeah. That yeah. Well, that's what I've also been saying is everyone's looking forward to retirement, but then they have a week off work and they go crazy because right. they don't have a purpose. You don't have a right. reason to wake up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't think that many people are actually looking forward to retirement. Yeah. But you as a researcher, why do you say you're going to retire in 10 years? You don't have to. You can go forever, man. Well, it is. It is. I mean, one of the nice things about university life is they have this kind of sense of even after you retire, you can continue to do your research nice. and, and so forth. And so that is that is great. And and look, sometimes I, um, you know, and I love what I do, so I don't. I can see myself continuing to do it, but you also don't want to spend. You know, and you don't want to spend your whole time uh, working. And there's, you know, some quality time to be had with family and things like that that I think you can achieve mm-hmm. in your in your later years. You know, there's there's a, there's that classic anecdote where people who've worked with people who are dying say, like, I've never sat with anyone who was dying who said, like, I wish I'd worked harder or, yeah. you know, spent more time at work. They always those say... Pe- those people are talking about manual labor jobs uh, and other stuff. Like, you you probably, I, I assume you genuinely enjoy meeting with colleagues and researching people. Mm-hmm. I think you're the exception. I think a lot of jobs are the exception. Well, it's 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 true that there is there are some jobs that are kind of like about uh, a life and there are some jobs that are about earning a living. Yeah. And, and, and we're very fortunate in these professions like mine that we we kind of have that expectation that our job should be meaningful and uh, should contribute to our sense of should be. self is it, of value. Is it sometimes not for you? Oh yeah. I mean every every job has kind of shitty components <laughs> you get to it, right? Through a study and you realize fuck uh, this. Yeah, well yeah <laughs> you do and you and some yeah and you you know like I <laughs> even as someone who's spent a lot of time training and so forth, you still sit there doing manual stuff sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, just like, I don't know, sorting documents or photocopying or whatever, you know. So so every job, no matter how highly trained you are, every job has an element of um, of sort of tediousness yeah. to it. And, you know, hopefully over time you get to do less of the tedious stuff and more of the stuff you like. But but no, I, I no, I love I love what I do. It's I feel very lucky is what I'm trying to say, that I have a job that feels very meaningful to me personally and I know that not everyone has that not everyone so a lot of people have a job that they feel um I have to do it because I've got to earn enough money to to pay bills and to sustain my family and everything like that and 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 there's a lot of people who go to jobs every day that they don't particularly like but because they have to yeah it's just whether you find a good job or you uh, find a mortgage and a wife and kids first right right um so what's bringing your job meaning right now what do you what are you studying right now if you can talk about it some Mm -hmm. some people have studied or spoken with like I can't talk about it till after I publish it right oh no we 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 pretty open about that stuff even when it's in process um well you know as i said before the big project that i'm working on is this question of whether we can um uh, prevent uh, depression Mm -hmm. during adolescence and uh if if you could do that then we think it would set people about better for their whole life oh yeah you know so so that's the project now the question that to solve that problem there's a lot of 
sub-problems you've got to solve, mm-hmm. you've got to say, be able to say, how early can we detect uh, a risk for depression? Mm. Uh, is there something we can do about it? So is it modifiable as the, the way we talk about it? Is there something you can change? And then the third question is, do we have what we call scalable methods for doing that? So in other words, do we have a way of doing that where we can do it uh, with a wide range of people? Because not one-on-one. On one. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily just with one or two people. But So you could, you could imagine designing some amazing expensive program where you collected every bit of data you could on an individual and you just focused on them, you know, in this kind of very bespoke way. But but that's not scalable, you know. That's that's a that's a kind of a Rolls Royce version. And so we need something that actually can get out to as many people as possible, but with uh, good evidence mm-hmm. that it's effective and and so forth. So so they're the kinds of the broader questions we're trying to solve. And what I'm working on now, having looked at that that broader set of questions from a whole bunch of different ways, is how can we use? Um, I'm really interested in how we can use digital technology. Mm-hmm. To solve some of those problems, it, it, it won't be a, you know, silver bullet as they say, or a perfect no. solution. But, but I think digital technology offers us some opportunities to, to do some of those things yeah. uh, in a in a new way that we haven't been able to. And that's got to be incredibly controversial because I assume everyone in the world's constantly saying, the more your kids on social media, the worse. I'm curious, are you into this because your kids are depressed and you're wondering about childhood depression in that way because if you haven't dealt with depression i'm just so curious what got you into this people tend to go into what's wrong mm-hmm. with them yeah well that's right there's a phrase we use you may have heard it called research is me search oh yeah. right that's so, so it's the idea that often when people start to do research it's on something that they find personally um intriguing uh, you know for because it's affected them individually or maybe in their or family close, yeah. yeah and um yeah i i i uh it's it's something I've thought about occasionally. I'm not a hundred percent why I started sure why I started studying this. I think, I think that I, I think that adolescence was a very kind of critical time in my life. You know, a lot of things happened in my family that were very. You know, my parents got divorced when I was oh, brutal yeah. thirteen. So that was sort of like at the start of adolescence. I had to deal with all that. Um, and uh, you know, which is not an uncommon experience, but it's a, Sadly. it's a, it's, it's a. Nevertheless, it's a, it's a tough one to go through for everybody. And um, so, so there was that. And I think you know, I also had some friends who I saw struggle with depression. One in particular, quite severely, and that really kind of blew my mind at the time. I, I didn't, I hadn't seen someone get stuck that way in a way that they couldn't snap out of it, and they yeah. couldn't, you couldn't, you know say funny things and get them over it you know it was they were really stuck and so I, I think that was compelling um so the phase of life and the f- particular kinds of problems that that people experience that, that yeah that that, that kind of got me curious about it and i knew i wanted to work um to help people with mental health issues but but really focused in on this because it seemed to be one of the biggest problems out there in terms of the number of people it affects and how Mm -hmm. severely it affects them and also this phase of life where it was often first occurring i like it man i mean it's beautiful we do need people doing all these different things uh another just to kind of touch on one more thing that we talked about Mm -hmm. in our first one uh, i just started spouting off a uh a serotonin receptor in your brain you're like Mm -hmm. which one is that is that ketamine and i had never tried ketamine at the time Mm -hmm. but then because you said it i looked into it and I researched it more, and I had some friends that used it because um, mm-hmm. it's all commonly used for depression. Mm-hmm. And I tried it mm-hmm. a, f- a handful of times. Did not work for me. Mm-hmm. Couldn't. That is hands down the, one of the worst things substances I've ever taken. Mm-hmm. But I'm so surprised that it helps other people. People are like, "Oh, my body feels better," and I just feel uplifted for days following. Mm-hmm. So that's really surprising. And I hope I hope people start accepting. Um, just stronger substances as a use. But here's the thing with that. And like same with MDMA therapy, like really mm-hmm. helps a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But at what point, if you're a youth, you're 13 mm-hmm. and say you were raped or beaten, you have trauma, mm-hmm. at what point would it be worse to make you wait until you're 18 and have that trauma fester for five years rather than giving a kid a substance like MDMA or ketamine? Like, mm-hmm. That's an interesting balance. If it's shown to help people, mm-hmm. are you going to make a kid wait five? And I know this isn't completely in your field. I'm, I know I'm yeah. kind of asking you to go out on a limb, but... Well, I think there's a number of things you've got to weigh up in that scenario, and one of them is you have to think about that when the brain is growing and 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 changing, it's sensitive to 
influences, whether mm-hmm. it be external influences like stress, uh, but also internal influences like the effects of substances and drugs. And one of the reasons that we tend to, the drugs that we regulate, you know, the legal drugs that we mm-hmm. tend to have regulations about when you can use them, so alcohol at 21, cigarettes mm-hmm. at 18, whatever it might be, is because part of the reason, it's not the only reason, but part of the reason for that is because we're trying to protect the person during this period of development from any toxic effects that the drug may totally. have on that. Yeah. So let's say you've got a kid who's experienced um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and had, had been trauma exposed. And let's say also, which is looking promising, you know, it's, there's still early days in our understanding of these uh, psychedelic and other mm-hmm. medicines. But, um, but let's say we've got a medicine that looks promising as a, as a treatment for that. Then you do need to um, balance up these two factors. Mm-hmm. On one hand, what's the benefit, if it works, of helping that person to get on top of their symptoms? Yeah versus what might be the potential harm yeah. of exposing a growing and developing brain mm-hmm. to a substance. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the great difficulty we have with a lot of these things is that we don't have... No, we don't have any we don't have, we don't have the da- We don't have yeah. the data yet. But we don't even have the data on um, what does trauma do to it. I mean, we might on the developing brain. Like if you well, we 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 know a fair bit about that. I'm not saying we know everything, yeah. but the, but the interesting thing is there's, there's a lot of research on trauma and its effect on how kids develop. Yeah, and, I'm sure and it stunts it, it. Correct. Pardon? Does it stunt it? It would be my strong guess, obviously. Well, it definitely has negative effects yeah. on development. You know, there's and, and at all levels. You know, in terms of the way the hormones work, in terms of the way the brain develops, in terms of uh, uh, gene expression. You know, there's all sorts of mechanisms where we now know how uh, uh, toxic some kinds of stress can be mm-hmm. for the developing child and the developing infants and the developing adolescent. So so th- we know that well. And so we know that reducing the, the exposure to that is is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of relating to just trauma and all that stuff, as I, re- I experienced since we last spoke, something not incredibly traumatic, but it really made me aware of something that you work on, which is suicide. A friend mm-hmm. of mine, a person close to me committed suicide. Okay. And since then, I've had not personal, but a lot of suicidal ideations of like, oh, why would someone kill themselves? What is it? like? And just like, it, it comes up more. And I think mm-hmm. about that person. So I imagine definitely when one youth kills himself, of all their friend groups going to think about it more. Sure. And so I had to develop a reason, obviously, like everyone mm-hmm. should come up with a reason why they shouldn't kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Mine is you're not guaranteed that that's the end. Say if you kill yourself, your consciousness could still be in there. You just can't tell anyone it can never get better. Or who knows what it depends on your religious beliefs and stuff. So I'm like, sure. oh, my God, that could be scarier yeah. than staying alive. It just if anything reduces the ability. Um, but so first off, why? And I'll get on the second topic mm-hmm. later. Why don't you think someone should kill themselves? Camus called that the one great uh, question. Question, yeah. sure. Yeah, no, the existentialists were very into that question. <laughs> um, the well, well, first of all, um, you know, we do have laws around euthanasia, mm-hmm. and so, and and in fact, it's legal here in Oregon, as you know, I'm sure. So, so you know, there are some circumstances where, as a, as a society, we've we've said. Maybe this person should have the right to take their own life, you know, mm-hmm. because they've got a serious medical illness. There's no real chance of recovery. Their quality of life is is diminishing mm-hmm. rapidly. You know, those sorts of circumstances. We've said, yeah, you know, if you if if you're really not going to get better, mm-hmm. if you're if what all you have to look forward to is a fairly low quality of life, a lot of pain, etc., like that. Or maybe you even know, if you're young, is this just for old people? If well, no, 12? I think I think it can apply at any age. But, but wow, but, I did but, not know this. But um, but but most of the people who who qualify to use the law are older because yeah. you, that's much that scenario I've just described is much more likely. But the point is, so so I'm not saying that there can't be a rational decision mm-hmm. to end your life because I think there can be. But the problem is with with the majority of people who are contemplating suicide is that they are one way of thinking about it is that they're not at that moment dealing with all the facts mm-hmm. right so in other words at that moment they may believe this situation i'm in which is awful and and painful yeah. is never going to end mm-hmm. i'm never going to get over it and that's almost certainly not true. Yeah. 
so in other words, when one of the reasons that we protect people from themselves when they may be at risk of, of, of having suicidal thoughts and behaviours is because we know from experience that for many people, in fact the majority, those feelings change over time. Just insert some time. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of the things that you don't want to do is you don't want to allow someone to make a non-reversible decision mm-hmm. when they're in a state of mind mm-hmm. that is not necessarily um, taking everything into account in the way mm-hmm. that mostly people would. You know, so for example, you know, in my in the work that I've done, I've worked with many people who've attempted suicide at various points and, and in every case in my experience, and I know this isn't true for everybody, but in every case in my experience, when the person has been glad that they were not, uh, they did not die by suicide. Yeah. So, so, so that tells us that, you know, many people are within 12 hours oh, wow. are, are glad that they mm-hmm. didn't succeed in the attempt. Some people feel that way within an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, so my point is if you, if you had... Um, a state of mind that was fleeting or passing and you were going to take some action based on that state of mind. That's uh, permanent. That's permanent. Then we might say, listen, maybe don't do that right now. We'll stop you doing that. So your rationale for not killing yourself, if your wife cheated on herself and killed herself and you lost your house and stuff, you'd be like, this will pass. That'd be your rationale if I'm getting it correct? Yeah, I mean, my, what I'd be saying would be that there, obviously if those things were to happen, there'd be enormous pain. Oh, yeah. But there would also be reasons for living, you know. So I've, I have children, I, yeah, you know, okay, want to, yeah. you know, and there, but, but, but even more fundamentally than that, even through some horrible, stressful, painful experience like that, it's not like I'll never have anything ever again that gives my life value or meaning or pleasure or, or, or purpose. But what if that's the fundamental illusion? What if we are, I don't believe this, but mm-hmm. I'm playing devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. But what if we're in hell and they give you just enough good to withstand the, the bad that will come in mm-hmm. your life? Like, I mean, either you or your wife will die. Mm-hmm. At some point, and leave the well, other. Well, we both will present. Yeah, presumably. but you're either going to leave her really yeah, sad, yeah. or you're going to be left really sad. Like, totally. Everyone deals with a lot of bad in their life. What if that you know the whole concept of what if this is hell? You know, what if killing yourself is the way? Because you can think of suicide in so many different ways. I personally, I'm just like, that's my answer. You know, I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think of it anything. But as someone who works with suicide uh, attempters, yes. I assume you've had a lot of suicidal ideations, at least like curious why they do it, yeah. getting into their head before you do your studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, oh no, you know, and I've, I've certainly had those black moments, you know, where, I mean, I've, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been, close to an actual attempt, but mm-hmm. I've certainly had moments where I've been like, oh, this is too hard. I can't go on. Maybe I should just, you know, this would be an option, you know, and I think, I think to be frank, most people have had those feelings from time to time and some people have them more often than others, but, but, but I've certainly had them. So, so yeah, so I've, I've wrestled with that question of like, why stay and what's it all about and, and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, and as I said before, I'm not, suggesting that there that there can't be a rational decision yeah. to take your own life but I think so here's one I'm I'll, if you don't mind I'm going to get a little philosophical for a yeah, second right it. so so one of the ways when we think about um, uh, medical treatment, when we think about what are we trying to achieve for people, one of the values that we always try to maximise is autonomy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you're a patient who comes to see me or someone else, then one of the things that I should be doing ethically is I should be maximising your ability to make good decisions on your own behalf. Mm-hmm. And, and that involves many things. It involves me laying out the alternatives. It involves me... Um, uh, you know, explaining the strengths and weaknesses of the different approaches that we could take, uh, and then allowing you to make a decision that feels well integrated with your own best interests and your values and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, that's it. Turns out that that's a lot easier to say than to do. And 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 one of the problems is so you know the interesting thing is you say well, if if uh, if you want to promote autonomy, and someone says I I, I feel like killing myself, well, you should respect that autonomy and let them do it. 
But here's the problem with that argument. Because yeah. that's prob- Alan Watts' argument. You should say, do it, because yeah. then they don't have to. Right. Yeah, well, a that's a time. yeah. That's a kind of a paradox. <laughs> Not of something you're going to tell someone. No, 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 no. The risks associated yeah. with that are pretty high. Yeah. But 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 the but the point is here. When you are making a decision without full information, it can't be an autonomous decision. Mm. So let me give you an example. Yeah. Let's say you were to say to me, Nick, I'd I'd like to borrow your car. Mm-hmm. and get somewhere, drive somewhere. And I go, no worries, Tiger, here's the keys, off you go. And and you drive it off. And I forget to tell you that the brakes in my car don't work. Yeah. Right? And so you have a crash and you hurt yourself or, God forbid, you die. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, I did not enhance your autonomy. On one hand, you could say, well, you asked for a car. I gave you one. I mean, it was, I was helping you. Good but actually, point. I did not give you the full information to know, actually, this car, the brakes don't work. Mm-hmm. And, that, and so in that sense, I impaired your autonomy yeah. because I did not allow you to make a decision under full information. Yeah. Now, let's get back to suicide. Mm-hmm. The problem with suicide is this. Many people when they're at that black moment when they feel like there's no hope and I can't go on and parts of what they um, believe at that moment are uh, often not true. Oh, yeah, I believe it. So because, for example, if you have a belief, I'm never going to feel better again, Mm -hmm. that's probably not true. If you have a belief, nobody cares about me, for many people, and of course it might vary, but for many people that's not true. Even though you believe it at that moment, you believe mm-hmm. it profoundly. Yeah. Nobody cares about me. I have no future. I may as well end it all. I cannot tolerate this pain any further. Many of these statements are in fact questionable yeah. in terms of their truth. And so if you make a decision to take your own life at that point mm-hmm. because you believe this pain is intolerable, nobody cares about me, people would be better off if I wasn't here and it's never going to change, then one could argue that you are making that decision on incorrect information because you may feel differently literally in two hours' time or maybe even less. And the worst example of this is when people have too much acetaminophen or do some, uh, I mean, like there's a AMA with uh, EMTs and stuff, and they said mm-hmm. the number one worst part of their job was people who attempted suicide by jumping off a building or taking too much, you know, acetaminophen having liver failure, and then they say, I regret this, please save me, but That's you can't. That's right, but they then can't. you can't. Yes, no, they're, they're, they're heartbreaking horrific. situations where, where someone, like, you know, leaps off a building or something like that, they... They permanently injure themselves. They maybe you know have spinal cord injury, become quadriplegic, or and they then, die an and, hour later. Yeah, and and then you say, and then and then they say, oh my goodness, I don't know what was going on with me. I wish I hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, you've got to say, actually, you've really done some permanent damage here, and you don't have much longer to be with us. And so that's why we insert time. In, <laughs> that's why we, in a way, impair their autonomy by saying, like maybe putting them in hospital or preventing them from taking those actions. Mm-hmm. But where we're, we're, we do it because we hope that we're acting in the interest of the future self, mm, yeah. the future self who will be glad that they didn't die, the mm-hmm. future self who will go on to have a good life with good times, with you know, deep connections with others, mm-hmm. with meaning and purpose. And there are many, many people, in fact, I would say the vast majority of people who have attempted suicide and and survived uh, will tell you that their life did go on to have meaning and purpose and deep connection and all the things that we really mm-hmm. make for a meaningful life. Yeah. And And all of that would be gone if they had taken this non-reversible mm-hmm. action in that moment. So sometimes the theory is sometimes you can, by preventing people from someone from taking an action when they, they can't make a good decision, mm-hmm. you're actually helping their autonomy because you're acting in the interests, our best mm-hmm. guest of the interests of the future self. Yeah. It's a little bit, it's the same reason we try to not have kids start to smoke cigarettes because we sort of say like at this age maybe maybe you're not ready to make this decision given Mm -hmm. we know how addictive they are etc if you if you're over a certain age and you want to do it okay Mm -hmm. it's up to you but but when you're younger maybe you don't have all the cognitive equipment to really understand the full implications of the decision you're making yeah um and to just go back a quick second so do you have a sneaking suspicion of what happens when you die and do you think um, dying of suicide makes it any different? So I'm I'm not not religious, and so I, I 
I presume that when you die, your consciousness ends. You're the blackness guy. Yeah. You're one of those. Yeah, but, I, think, I think it ends. That's, the, that's, best, the best argument is, don't you think that's your version of heaven? You get to let down everything. And, like, that is a form of heaven. To be like, oh, it's as nice as it was before I was born, or something. Exactly. I think that's that's. I mean, that's a comparison I think about all the time. That that that's like, what was my consciousness before I le- was mm-hmm. alive? And as far as I know, I had none. Um, and that's what I think it'll be like after I go. And so it, it's not a, it's not a horrible thing. It's not a. But it, you know, I do like being alive. So. I will miss it. Yeah. And <laughs> well, I won't miss it because I won't have consciousness, presumably. That's <laughs> presumably. My, but, 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 yeah, you know, and, yeah. and just to be clear, I'm not dogmatic about these things. That's just my nice. get best guess. And it's I don't, beautiful. I certainly don't um, uh, think poorly of people who have a different, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a, yeah. I'm not kind of a militant atheist who wants no. to tell other people how they should think about it. In mm-hmm. fact, my wife, who I, adore is is deeply religious oh, and, crazy yeah, and, and she yeah. she's very devoted to that so oh. she she has a deep sense of that uh, as being a reality for her but for me you know and I've thought about these things a lot my father was a um, was a clergyman and so you know we grew up in church and yeah. it was it was a constant question but for me what's made most sense and has felt kind of real and grounding and satisfying is the sense that that, that this is a material reality and 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 we're biological entities and yeah. that our consciousness is kind of linked to that. And so have you ever, I'm going to ask this question, I'm going to give a small analogy. Have mm-hmm. you ever had a near-death experience? And why I bring that up is, um, again, with the ketamine experience, you mm-hmm. can have a small dose, it's like a bunch of alcohol, it's, you're mm-hmm. disassociating from your body, mm-hmm. and then you take a larger dose, it's called K-holing. Mm-hmm. You just completely are gone. It really does feel like you're dying. And mm-hmm. I personally hated that. Mm-hmm. What the, what I did like that also gave me the other perspective was uh, DMT or ayahuasca for a lot of mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, entirely feels like, like you almost feel bad. You're like, oh, why did I do that? I had so much good things going on. Why did I have to kill myself? Or why did I have to die? Mm -hmm. Um, And then you obviously have a transformative Mm -hmm. experience that might be what happens after you die. Mm -hmm. I have uh, a slight theory about that. Mm -hmm. But then, um, and then you come back, you're like, wow. So you couldn't, I mean, have you had a near-death experience? And that's what you got out of it is that you get blackness. Because my near-death experience, I would almost consider it that. And really quick, the reason I'd consider that is because, uh, DMT and all psychedelics are just mm-hmm. serotonin. They're just a yeah. pump full of serotonin. Mm-hmm. And they gave, they measured rat's serotonin levels and they killed it. And the serotonin level spiked when it died. Mm-hmm. So there's some, mm-hmm. you could bro science it together mm-hmm. that that is mm-hmm. a similar experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got out of it. Have mm-hmm. you ever had a near death experience that I, shaped I you? I have not. You have not? No. I, I mean, I've certainly, no not, not, not for a medical reason. And also, I haven't had a psychedelic experience that would, mm-hmm. I would put in that category. So, so no, I haven't had it, and and so look, you know, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I'm 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 not sure about what happens. I just you know, it's it it's helpful to have a theory to live your life by, and that's yes, the one yeah. that makes sense to me like at it. the moment. And I might change my mind, but it's it's well, the, my reason for why against that is because then if you want to kill yourself, you're like fuck. Who cares? As soon as I'm gone, my you know everything's done for. That's mm-hmm. such a and it almost promote suicide if everything if you're both your kids and your wife died you'd be like well i could just shut this off and you could kill yourself you could you, you know? could and 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 like i said like I, it's not impossible for me to imagine rational and reasonable decisions to take your own life but i think that when we're dealing with people who are experiencing mental health difficulties there's you've got to ask that question is the person making the decision based on all Mm-hmm. the facts that are that yeah. are actually true and relevant to their life. I think and, and this ho- sense of hopelessness yeah. is often uh, one that is quite distorted mm-hmm. and and yet is driving the decision very powerfully. Mm-hmm. Another thing of acting on not all the facts that we didn't touch on last time, but you, we alluded to because you mm-hmm. were studying at the time, is mass shooters. Yes. I assume they're not acting on all the facts correctly. Oh, no. why, why do people do it, man? Well, <laughs> I won't presume to know the answer to that question, but but but... There's there's probably many motivations, but uh, I would agree with your supposition that there the people who engage in that behaviour are in a restricted state of mind mm-hmm. because there are many things that they're not aware of, and you know, of course, the most fundamental is that they're not aware of their their moral connection mm. to the value of other people's lives. Mm, right yeah. so they so somehow they've managed to shut off the awareness that 
that the people whose lives they are taking has the same moral value mm. as their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and what, whatever need they feel that they're addressing through taking that action somehow is more powerful or more meaningful or more valuable than these, than these other people's lives. And, of course, in, in some of these cases, we're talking about many, many people. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so for most people, that would be not only morally objectionable but morally not possible to do, incomprehensible. You couldn't even bring yourself to do it. And so clearly for many of the people who commit these acts, they're in a state of mind that is extremely abnormal, probably not only for people in general but for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're in a – now I'm not saying that they're crazy or or psychotic, you know, that I'm not saying they have a mental illness, but they're in a state of mind where they've got themselves so focused on some issue, whatever it may be, that they feel motivates this act, that that motivation outweighs Mm -hmm. the rights and value of the people who are going to be harmed and killed. And so, so, yeah, that's a very, very abnormal state of mind. Mm -hmm. And understanding how people get there is, of course, a really... Important question. I'm sure one factor that gets there that helps or not helps but promotes people getting mm-hmm. there is another thing you've studied, which is probably insomnia. If you don't sleep for two days mm-hmm. and you already have some underlying things, I'm sure that's come like would probably come up. So, what do you think of sleep intervention for depression and all these other things? Yeah, well, we've yeah, no, I'm you're sort of setting me up for a softball here because this is this <laughs> is a thing I've worked on quite a bit, and I I, I think sleep is a is an incredibly important building block of wellness yeah. and mental health, and um, we, you know that's that's I'm not going out on a limb there. There's like <laughs> no, there's a huge yeah. amount of data and personal experience that that for everybody alive really that mm-hmm. that uh, that tells us that. So so, and so we have used uh, we've done some in, uh, studies on using sleep improvement as a way to prevent. Um, mental health problems in, in in young people, particularly mm-hmm. in my case, and um, yeah, there's very good good support for it. That it's a it's a it's a way in, and it's a it's a way to help people. Yeah, have you done many all nighters in your life? When I was younger, yeah, but not not so much anymore. I mean, one of the things that's happened to me as I've gotten older is I've become less tolerant of not sleeping. Really? Because I like them sometimes. They yeah. almost feel good. I don't know if you did them in your youth, if yeah. you enjoyed them around in necessity. But. Well, well, the, you know, there is, is, interestingly enough, there is a, there is a, um, a known effect where if you actually get someone who's fairly depressed to stay up all night, mm-hmm. for some individuals that can result in improvement, wow. a dramatic improvement in their mood. Hmm. Here's the problem. It, Though it only lasts usually until they sleep again, uh, yeah. and so and of course you can't go too long without sleeping because biological necessity. So so it doesn't it doesn't work as a kind of like a treatment for depression. But no. we do know that for some people, they get this very dramatic improvement in their mood if they mm-hmm. if they stay up and 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 that's probably got something to do with how the circadian rhythms being reset. And so the 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 rhythms these biological rhythms that control sleep and wake and so forth are very often disturbed in people in depression with depression. Yeah. You know, so they have insomnia, or, or they're sleeping too much. Or yeah, sometimes it can be sleeping too much. What we call hypersomnia. Yeah. Have you looked into the other way where um, your sleep intervention is having them only sleep five hours a night? It's something I've heard of from a couple of people who are debating Matthew Walker's presupposition that yeah, yeah, yeah. more sleep is better. It's like sometimes not. Yeah. Well, there's definitely individual differences in how much people need to sleep to feel well and healthy and and so forth. Um, and there there are studies, and in fact, interesting sleep restriction is a kind of a, a, a treatment that's used sometimes for insomnia. Weirdly enough, because what you're doing is you're very often in insomnia, people are spending a lot of time in bed tossing and turning and not really getting off to sleep. And yeah. and so what we sometimes do is we actually restrict the amount of time people are spending in bed so that most of the time they're in bed, they're actually sleeping. That's a good idea. And then what that does is it builds a strong stimulus connection between being in bed and sleeping rather mm. than being in bed and tossing and turning and having, you know, like uh, distressing thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's anxiety that keeps most people from sleeping. Totally, totally. Which is brutal, man. It yeah. goes back to why does everyone have anxiety? And I... Do you think there's there's a way to live without anxiety, or do you think it's like one? I mean, I think you said it was omnipresent, like mm-hmm. everyone across pretty much every uh, social 
ranking and stuff experiences it. But I, I would, I'm not there, but mm-hmm. I push back and say, I think there's hope that you could live a life without anxiety or depression. Yeah, I know. Look, I think there's people who probably get pretty close mm-hmm. to not to not having those those feelings. And you know, we think of people that we think of as probably kind of it peak mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, one thinks of the Dalai Lama and people like that who seem yeah. to have you know very um, not only that they have uh, you know, even temperament and they seem to be able to have this kind of good perspective on everything but but of course in in the case of that there's a series of practices in 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 buddhist um tradition that explicitly teach you to decenter from these feelings yeah. and 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 observe them rather than engage with them yeah. and and then and then that helps uh for many people to not get sucked into these sort of that's the whole you're not your mind you're not even your body that's uh, right. Kind yeah, of that you um, sort of yeah, you know, your mind is something you can stand back and observe mm-hmm. and say, and observe as the Buddhists would say with equanimity. That yeah. is that you don't have to say it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. I like it. I don't like it. You don't have to say any of those things. Mm-hmm. You can say it is what it is, and then then of course that creates a a more a less reactive yeah. mind. And so, where are you on that path? Do you still find yourself getting angry over? Like you seem like a pretty equanimous person, equanimous person, mm-hmm. um, who doesn't get angry, but but do you? Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a big angry person. That's nice. not that's not a people aren't going to like you if you're angry. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, you so good funny. good call back there. But yeah, no, that's 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 true. I mean, you know, but but it's it's also true. But it, it's not that I'm like seething with anger and and need to suppress that in order to make people like me. I just mm-hmm. think that for me, a more dominant. Uh, thought or experience is oh i'd like to get on well with people and 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 that's that's a more dominant experience than that person's a rotten piece of shit and i hate them and that i want to you know like you know so so i um yeah so i i I get angry but it's not it's not Mm -hmm. one of my big emotions it's not one that i think comes to me very easily or very often nice because i've started thinking of anger as just you're not in control of your emotions at that point Mm -hmm. because there's never really a reason to get angry a good way of thinking of is good things go out of your mind really quick. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of a good thing, okay, it's gone. But if you, you can hold on to these angry things for a long time, so it really does rob you of just, you know, being equanimous or whatnot yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. That's um, right. I mean, you seem like a busy guy. You're on a meeting um, up until right before we speak. Mm-hmm. I assume you got something else going right on after this. Sure. Do you meditate or do you ever find peace in your day or what? Yeah, so I do. I do. I have had a, I have done formal meditation practice at various times in my life. Like most people, it's sort of, who aren't living in a monastery, it you know comes and goes, and I'm sometimes I'm a little more uh, more regular with it than I am. But but you know, I, I the way I think about it is that it's whether it's not just purely a matter of whether you have a regular sitting practice, you know, a formal practice of meditation, but it's also whether you are mindful mm-hmm. as a state of mind, and you can be mindful doing a lot of things. So I like running, and running's very mindful. Yeah. experience for me um there are other experiences that can be very mindful and so i think the thing is to be have the ability to be mindful of certain points of you know during the day and 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 i think if you have that if you have that ability to be present in the moment be accepting of your own experience not trying to change what's happening i mean that's the core of being mindful is to like like observing not reacting being accepting and yeah. being present, you know, not letting your mind run away to somewhere else. And if you can do that, and I have various sorts of things that I do that in, that, 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 that help me to get there. Having said that, of course, I'd like to spend more of my day yeah. doing that. But I'm a, I'm not a, you know, people. I like, I like to be busy. Yeah. You know, like I like, I like, I'm, I'm. I just I like to be stimulated. Like yeah. I like, oh, you, know, you, you know, I like, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm the kind of person that if I'm like at a bus stop and the bus isn't coming, I'd rather walk the next stop than wait for the bus. You or know, you, like, do you not flip open your phone? Are you not a phone person? That's oh no, I look at my phone. Do and, you? And, yeah, yeah, and I, I, you know, as much as most people probably do. Or, well, maybe you know, is, but yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> maybe a, what, maybe less or maybe more. Well, I would know what I was going to say is <laughs> is I was probably less than some people younger than me who have more on their phone that's really compelling. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I, I I definitely get distracted by my phone, and I do think that phones are 
a mixed blessing, you know, because they do. I think they do mitigate against mindfulness because oh, because they they give you this kind of constant availability of distraction yep. and ta- and being away from here and mm-hmm. away from in the moment and 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 yeah, you can just bring out your phone in yeah. any moment of even mild boredom and just mm-hmm. sort of try to entertain yourself. And of course. Sometimes that's cool, and you yeah. see something really funny and interesting, or you listen to a great podcast. Yeah. But 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 sometimes it's you're really just it's mindless mm-hmm. consumption, yeah. scrolling. Like I'm doing this, but I'm not really getting anything mm-hmm. out of it. You're just doing it just to be just entertaining enough to not think about your anxious thoughts. That's right. <laughs> you know. That's right. And then they come back to bite you, and you try to go to sleep. That's right. That's well, and yeah, yeah, or when you wake up in the morning. But yeah, no, you're right. The the the, the night time is a really difficult time for anxious thoughts. It is. Well, hey, I had an absolute blast. We just hit an hour. Thank you very yep. much for your time. Uh, do you have any shout outs for people? I'm actually going to put your email in this one because people, instead of reaching out to me, just, just send him an email and just, you know, thank him personally. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, that's good. Well, yeah, always good to talk to you, Tiger. I really enjoyed well. it. And we always cover a lot of interesting ground. Yeah, we get it's, to a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much and have a great day. Yeah, you too, man. All right, folks, that's the show. Thank you very much for tuning in to Talks with Tiger with Nick Allen. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe for a new episode every other day. And if you got some time, leave a review. It helps a bunch and share with friends. Lots of love and take care, everyone.